Congratulations. Now get off the stage and get back to work. Yeah. Sounds like a good idea, Gavin. Get to work. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe. At least five days a week on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. You can run, but you can't hide from the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. And all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Well, it was a very big, very big primary day on Tuesday in eight states, including Alabama, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, South Dakota, and, of course, out here in California. Not to mention some special elections in some other states like Missouri, Maybe we'll get to that, try to get to as much of this as we can a little bit later in the show. But uh, here in California, where Democrats appear, and I emphasize appear, to have dodged a a whole bunch of bullets, frankly, in a number of key U.S. House primaries where our state's top two or jungle primary system means that uh, everybody from all parties runs in the same primary And the top two vote getters from any party, even the same party, go on to compete in the general election. Well, as I say, uh, some bullets appear to be dodged after a long night uh, on uh, on Tuesday and into uh, Wednesday morning. And still we're uh, (laughs) trying to keep an eye on a lot of the results for a lot of the reasons. Did you get any rest at all, Desi (laughs) Doyen? No, not at all. But, you know, it was a very interesting night, especially to watch as the returns came in. You know, specifically in California with this very unusual jungle primary and seeing how it works actually in practice. Works or doesn't. Uh, And we'll get to some of that as well momentarily after uh, months of worry that they might blow some big chances in California due to the state's unusual primary system and millions of dollars spent to try to avoid that nightmare scenario, says Cam Joseph at TPM. House Democrats appear to have dodged a bullet with the majority of votes now counted, at least by computer, if not by human being. 
Party strategists had been very concerned about getting locked out in at least five different districts they hope to flip from red to blue this November, where two Republicans could have emerged in both first and second place and get to face one another after the state's all-party jungle-style, jungle primary, as they call it. I prefer to call it the top two because yeah. jungle primary sounds vaguely racist to well, me. Well, it's also, it's not descriptive. I mean, the real description is top two. That based, says exactly what it is. Based on reported election results as of Wednesday afternoon, anyway, it appears likely, though still not certain, that Democrats will have avoided that disaster of getting locked out entirely in all five districts. Democrats' biggest worry for months had been that race against... Congressman Dana Rohrabacher, whose unabashedly pro-Russia stance and sometimes, uh, well, I would say often other far-right views, may have damaged him even with GOP loyalists out here in the Golden State and gave another Republican an opportunity in that race to go up against him this November. But uh, that doesn't appear to, to have happened, doesn't appear to have happened, the Democrats' fears, however, were very well-funded. Uh, well-funded. Well, that, too. <laughs> yeah, they well, did. Well-founded. Spent a lot of money. Uh, it was, uh, in fact, pretty nip and tuck throughout the night as results were coming in on Tuesday in Rohrbacher's race and uh, several others that Democrats see as flippable this November, where Hillary Clinton won, them, won the uh, districts in 2016. But based on today's reported results, it appears... Democrats will, in fact, get a candidate through to the general election in that race uh, and uh, and the others that were of the greatest concern for them on Tuesday. In statewide contests in the meantime, California, California Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, who you heard there at the top of the show, uh, Democrat uh, will face off against Republican businessman John Cox. They both advanced to the general election for governor after there were some 27 candidates on Tuesday's primary ballot in that race. All but uh, with uh, Newsom and uh, running against a Republican, that would seem to all but guarantee that the progressive Newsom will be California's next governor in the heavily Democratic state. Cox appeared uh, appears to have easily bested former L.A. mayor Antonio Villaragosa in, uh, in the uh, primary race to uh, get the number two slot to go on to November. Newsom, for his part, easily cruised into the top spot, as expected, after some eight years serving as lieutenant governor under Jerry Brown, who is outgoing, termed out. And it should be uh, noted, uh, Newsom is also the courageous San Francisco mayor, former San Francisco mayor, who back in 2004 said that he'd read the state and federal constitutions and saw no reason why same-sex couples should be denied marriage licenses. That was not a popular position at the time, even among Democrats back then. Uh, and then he came out and started marrying same-sex couples himself on the on the steps of uh, the city hall back in San Francisco back in the day. So he has been progressive on a number of fronts for a very long time and hasn't gotten a lot of national credit for it because Democrats are, are are still mad at him about that in 2004. Some still blame him for John Kerry's loss 
back in 2004 because it uh, freaked out uh, a lot of people. Republicans got uh, anti-marriage equality initiatives on the ballot back then. And uh, some still blame um, Gavin Newsom for doing the right thing back then. Yeah, and for standing up and having the courage to just go ahead and do it and and get it done. And I'll just note for the record that, hey, here we are 14 years later, and the Supreme Court has ruled on all of those ballot initiatives that were passed in those uh, intervening years and has struck them all down, and now it is the law of the uh, land. Yeah, and uh, it turns out that Gavin was right. Sometimes doing the right thing is not necessarily the popular thing. Democratic uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, she will face progressive Democratic challenger Kevin DeLeon in the uh, in the general election this November out of some 32 candidates who were on the ballot Tuesday. Feinstein sailed to the top slot, uh, which likely means that DeLeon is going to have an uphill battle to unseat the 84 year old U.S. senator. But that's a race where we'll have two Democrats running. Not sure that's a good or bad thing, frankly. We'll uh, be joined momentarily by Democracy for America's Jim Dean, whose DFA had endorsed candidates uh, who, who won, won some and lost some on Tuesday. We'll get his take on the, on the big picture. And if that's a good thing to have these top two primaries where you have two Democrats or potentially two Republicans running on the same ticket... Uh, In any event, we'll get his picture on that, uh, like I say, somewhat confusing eight-state primary day. I want to put our our usual disclaimer here when we talk about results on the day after an election. In fact, we don't know the full extent of problems that could still uh, emerge from the actual tallies to affect them. All of these numbers are unofficial and actually unexamined by human beings still at this point at all. So uh, take that caveat. A lot of the problems with elections aren't uh, don't come to light until days and weeks and months after the elections. Sometimes uh, add to that that California is notoriously slow, as Cam Joseph describes it. I'd say deliberate and careful, but um, at counting votes. Um, so uh, it, it this year may be even slower, is certainly going to be even slower, because for the first time, ballots that were postmarked by Election Day, vote-by-mail ballots, um, will be accepted and tallied, even when they arrive days after uh, the Tuesday race. So results could change. Add to that the fact that L.A. County had a major failure major failure we discussed a bit on yesterday's show we're now uh, learning more about that but it includes uh, more than 118,000 registered voters that were left off of the printed polling place voting rosters on Tuesday meaning there are uh, many more provisional ballots to count this year than in most midterm primaries more on that in a moment but speaking of reasons to be concerned about results Tuesday, as well as what may happen in November. We've got more today on the other known major problem we uh, we noted on yesterday's show coming out of South Dakota, which also held their primaries. Issues with electronic poll books slowed voting in eight counties in South Dakota. And those were the results of a vendor and county problem, according to South Dakota's secretary of state, 
Secretary of State Shanielle Krebs said the poll books, the uh, these electronic poll books, because, you know, using paper it was just too entirely safe, apparently. We've now got to go to computers for our poll books as well. The Secretary of State um, said that these computers, which are lo- used to uh, look up registration information, including party affiliation, they are used, they have been used, they are being used in South Dakota without her endorsement. The problems uh, were apparently in eight counties that use these poll books made by a vendor by the name of BP, uh, B-Pro Inc. I have not heard of B-Pro Inc. Secretary of State Krebs said she could only give background information about the poll books since she was on the ballot herself seeking the Republican nomination for the U.S. House. She said she has been opposed to their use since she took office back in 2015. She was not running Tuesday's elections because uh, she was seeking office in South Dakota. This is kind of nice. In South Dakota, if you're on the ballot as Secretary of State, you don't run the elections. That's a nice idea that I wish other states would pay attention to. Yeah, that's kind of a... You'd think that that would be a thing people would care about. Uh, well, they do care about it, uh, about it but it, it still happens all the time. So we had a Secretary of State's race out here on Tuesday, and the Secretary of State, Alex Padilla, oversaw his own election. And what do you know? He uh, he was the top, uh, top vote-getter, as it turns out. Uh, in any event, uh, the Republican... Uh, Krebs did not oversee that election. Instead, it was overseen by the Deputy Secretary of State. Uh, Kia Warren is her name, <laughs> aptly named. Uh, the, the, the poll books in this case that failed, these electronic poll books that failed on Tuesday, were first piloted back in 2012, said Krebs, and then again in seven counties for the 2014 election. And things didn't go well at that point, she says. And uh, she had met with Krebs had met with county auditors who run elections back in 2015, shortly after she became secretary of state, told them she did not support their use. She said, I believe in old fashioned paper and I'm proving my point today. (laughs) You think? Yeah. She said the Secretary of State's office has no control over the operations of poll books, which I guess is run uh, by the counties and the private vendor. BP Pro is uh, based in Pierre. According to its website, BP Pro's total vote election software is meant to streamline the process. How'd that work out on Tuesday? The electronic poll books were down at times, sluggish at other times, causing lines at polling places. Even though election officials tried their best to keep things moving, uh, that had to be done manually at times because the uh, poll books, which scan driver's licenses and ID cards, simply didn't work. Officials were told that the problems were caused by, quote, sporadic loss of connectivity. Brown County Auditor uh, Maxine Fisher said the county uh, loads the voter files into the electronic poll books, then connects them with the 11 vote centers in the county. And somehow the poll books uh, were going in and out of sync on Election Day, she said. Well, weird, weird that a that a voting system that relies on computers, which must work for on one single day per year, pretty much. Odd that that computer failed. Who could have predicted it? Well, you know, computers are fickle. I'm sure everything will work out great 
when the really big crowds hit this November, why worry? Of course, it's not just computers that we do need to worry about. As we saw yet again out here in Los Angeles County on Tuesday, the nation's largest voting jurisdiction, which is larger than uh, something like 32 actual states, just this county alone. A printing error, what is being chalked up to a printing error in any event, resulted in more than 118,000 names missing from the L.A. County voter rolls, the ones that were printed out on paper for Tuesday's primary election, according to the Registrar Recorder County Clerk Dean Logan. The registrar's office was emphasizing on Tuesday that all registered vo- registered voters who were affected by the error, error could, in fact, cast provisional ballots that would be counted if they were found to be valid. A total of 118,522 voter names were excluded in some 1,500 of the county's 4,300 precincts. Yes, it's a huge county. Uh, that, according to a, a statement that was issued by the office, Logan said, We apologize for the inconvenience and concern this has caused. Voters should be assured that their votes will be counted. All poll workers were reportedly told to ensure that voters were given a provisional ballot and that their votes would be counted. Uh, Folks can check the provisional ballot tracker to find out if that is true on the L.A. County Registrar's website, which allows voters to confirm the ballot was cast. Whether it was counted accurately, that's a separate issue, of course. On average, according to the registrar, some 85 to 90 percent of provisional ballots are determined to be uh, uh, to be valid and counted. But the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law, which leads the Election Protection Program, the uh, 866 Our Vote hotline, they say they received a lot of complaints from voters in L.A. County about this. And that while uh, these voters should have been offered provisional ballots, they report that many were not. Kristen Clark, the president uh, of the uh, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, said we are deeply troubled by the problems impacting voters in L.A. County. And we are currently investigating. She said these kind of errors should have no place in our democracy today. Moreover, it is clear that the problems were not isolated, but widespread and systemic The Villaraigosa for Governor campaign is calling on the L.A. uh, Registrar Recorder to keep vote centers open through Friday, June 8. Well, that's not going to happen. Villaraigosa was uh, on the ballot for governor. Uh, There was at least some chance that he might have won the the second-place spot to challenge Gaffin Newsom this uh, November, but it looks like that's not going to happen. Uh, But, you know, he was mayor of L.A. And here in L.A., 118,000 votes, voters were potentially left off the ballot if they uh, were, you know, or kept from voting if they went to the polling places on Tuesday. So I can understand why he would be upset by this. That's not good. Um, All right. There were some other uh, things that they call software glitches in the media on uh, on computers around uh, around Los Angeles and around the state of California uh, up in San Mateo County California near San Francisco voters at three centers 
were forced to cast provisional ballots after technical difficulties temporarily shut down the electronic voting system. Now, in that case, I would say that's actually good news in one sense, because uh, this is uh, up in San Mateo County, uh, California, near San Francisco. There are, they are, uh, along with Orange County, the right-leaning district where Dems hope to flip a, a few House seats this November, San Mateo and Orange County are the only two counties left in the state which currently use 100% unverifiable touchscreen-style direct-recording electronic voting machines for all voters at the polls. So at least, uh, hey, those voters got to vote on verifiable paper ballots. The problem was, again, not the machines, the voting systems, voting machines themselves, but again, the electronic poll books, which failed. No, it was not a glitch Bay Area News Group or whoever was reporting this. Uh, this was a failure and uh, it, it slowed voting and may have prevented voters from voting on Tuesday morning. The uh, the county said that no voters were turned away. They were given provisional ballots instead. Well, if true, that's good news. But is relying on these systems for one single day in November with huge turnout as the entire country votes at once? Is that a good idea? I would argue not so much, but I have been doing so for many years. All right. To discuss some of the actual results from Tuesday and what they may or may not mean for Democrats this November, we'll, we'll talk to Jim Dean of DFA momentarily. He'll be joining us next after a quick break on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. <laughs> The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com/donate. That's bradblog.com/donate. And thanks. Welcome to the jungle. Can't even keep up with their names. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Uh, yeah, it was a big and at times quite confusing primary day in eight states on Tuesday, especially out here in California, where officials will be continuing to count votes for the next several weeks, including late vote by mail ballots, which will be counted for the first time under a new state law if they were postmarked by Election Day. Uh, and yet still arrive several days after the election. There will also be a larger than uh, usual number of provisional ballots that are going to have to be verified and tally, given that huge error with some 180,000 voters left off the printed rolls in L.A. County on Tuesday. But in all, in California, at least as of Wednesday afternoon, it appears that Democrats dodged a huge bullet in all of the U.S. House races that they see as flippable this November. But where so many Democrats were on the primary ballot, it was feared uh, the vote would be split among them such that none of them would end up winning the state's so-called jungle primary or top two primary system to go on to compete in November. As of this hour, it looks like a Democrat will, in fact, qualify in all of the seats considered to be competitive and or flippable 
this November in California. There were also a number of elections in other states where Democrats and progressives continued to perform well enough to suggest a blue wave could, emphasis could, be coming this fall though the GOP and Donald Trump's numbers have been uh, slowly moving up in recent weeks, and you can rest assured they will not be taking it easy between now and November 6th. Both national Democrats and grassroots progressives continue to mount aggressive and competitive primary races this year in anticipation of what promises to be a huge contest this fall as voters for the first time since Donald Trump's stunning upset victory in 2016 get to respond nationally to what I regard at least as a national emergency that our country is now facing since his election. The effort appears to have worked at least in terms of turnout in some of the most competitive California races on Tuesday. As Steve uh, Singeiser of uh, Daily Coast Elections noted late last night, of the 14 seats held by Republicans, Democrats have already improved on their 2016 primary performances in 11 of them. He's talking about California here, including every contested race, save for California 21. Five of those races were double-digit gains over 2016. Joining us now to offer, no doubt, ingenious and insightful perspective on all of this, uh, as far as what we can take away from Tuesday's eight state primaries and where both national Democrats and grassroots progressives are at this point in the crucial 2018 election season, is Jim Dean, longtime chairman of the progressive grassroots group Democracy for America, or DFA, which was founded after the 2004 run for president by his brother Howard Dean. And they have been working ever since to promote uh, a broad coalition of grassroots organizers to elect a progressive and inclusive new American majority in a fight for populism at all levels of office in all 50 states, according to their website. Brother Dean, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Brad, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. Great to have you here, as ever. It's been a while. Uh, so let's go uh, big picture first here, Jim, uh, before we can get into some specifics, since everything is, as I said, a bit confusing, both here in uh, California and with all the other states holding primaries on Tuesday. What can and or should Democrats and progressives take away from what appears to have happened in California on Tuesday, along with all of the other states that held elections uh, in at least seven other states across the country. And that, that's if you don't count an important special election in Missouri, by the way. What's the what's the big yep. picture we should take away today, Jim? Well, actually, it's a, a picture that I've been uh, one of the things that uh, I've been celebrating. And I think that we can all celebrate uh, uh, coming after this little uh, Fort Sumter moment in 2016, uh, and that is the number and plethora of candidates, Brad, that are out there uh, running and putting themselves out. And I, and I want to express my appreciation, uh, certainly on behalf of DFA, to all of the candidates that were running uh, in these primaries on the Democratic side, uh, the progressive side, uh, and, uh, and and certainly uh, some of them won against candidates we were supporting, and others did not. But uh, we really appreciate this, um, and I and I think that's one thing that can be celebrated. I think the other thing that uh, I, I celebrate, but I I hope others will, uh, and I certainly know that the voters, particularly in Southern California, are uh, they're celebrating uh, the uh, what I think is a pretty big advertisement for the incumbents 
of uh, certain levels of Democratic Party institutional leadership uh, in Washington, D.C. And I'm hopeful that the California Democratic Party will simply send a letter to the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee telling them that they darn, they will not be needed uh, in this great <laughs> state of California uh, come November. Uh, it, this was a uh, institutional group that basically approached this primary as if Nixon was still in the White House and living in San Clemente in 1968. Uh, they looked at these districts as if they were the same makeup. Uh, they had absolutely, it was even not even a hint of acknowledge that there might actually be some other voters, unaffiliated voters, and others uh, in particularly these Southern California districts that might be interested in this election. And in fact, not only were those voters interested, as you have pointed out, and in, in Steve, in Steve Singheiser has pointed out in the turnout, uh, but in fact, they actually voted. Uh, and in fact, uh, they make up what is a, a really what, uh, what could be known as the new American majority, as Steve Phillips has referred to it. Uh, you know, voters of color, uh, white progressives uh, out there, uh, yes, in Southern California, voting for Democrats and voting in numbers enough to support several candidates running in a district, even to the effect that one candidate would prevail uh, as a number two finisher. Uh, and the vote, in fact, uh, was not split. Uh, in any of these districts, uh, Repu- uh, Democrats fared really uh, as well, almost as well as Republicans did. Uh, and in and, and a state that's very hard to get high turnout, by the way, because it's effectively a Democratic or one-party state right now. So mm-hmm. uh, turnouts in California are tough. So I, I'm thrilled about this. I'm thrilled that the candidates brought these constituents with them uh, into this and that they were out there uh, expanding the electorate, which is really what is the key to winning uh, a race in any part of the country this year. Uh, and I'm less than thrilled, as always, uh, with the institutional Democrats that seem to believe that if the voters are given less choices, that somehow uh, and they'll be allowed to be able to spend more money on smaller numbers of candidates, and therefore they'll win, which is a formula that has not done well uh, over the last 10 years. So uh, we're happy about this. Uh, we're thrilled with the vote turnouts. We're thrilled with the candidates that are going to be running. Uh, and in terms of the other states, uh, I think you also saw some very dynamic uh, situations, uh, particularly in New Jersey uh, and other places where we have good candidates running, many of whom have never run for office before, uh, and many of whom reflect uh, a younger and more diverse electorate that we actually are and that actually exists in this country, not the electorate from years gone by uh, that the Democratic Party leadership seems to think uh, is it, still in existence and is still uh, riding the you know, ruling the electoral outcomes in this country. Well, let me ask you, uh, let me press you a bit on this, Jim. When you talk about the institutional Democrats, I know you're obviously talking about the DNC leadership, but also the uh, the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign uh, Committee. Uh, yep. he, here in, in California, there was uh, there was a justifiable concern. It seems to me justifiable concern uh, that with our uh, crazy top two so-called jungle primary system where everyone and all the parties compete in the primaries for the top two slots to go on to the general election, uh, where you had all of these Democrats, you had a lot of Democrats running in each of these races, and there was justifiable concern that it would split the vote and you'd end up with two Republicans going on to November. Setting aside whether 
that system makes any sense at all. I'm not crazy about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But uh, the, the National Democrats did wade in into a couple of those races, put in some money uh, in a number of them because they were concerned that Democrats would be locked out entirely. Uh, the uh, uh, you know, who is seen as conservative by many progressives and representing the party establishment, so I think you've said clearly they should stay out of it, but can a case be yep. made that they arguably helped to assure that uh, Democrats would in fact be on the on the race this, on the ballot this November in a couple of these key races? No, I, I, this is and honestly, you know, yes, was there risk in this, Brad? To your point, there absolutely was because we have not been down this road before, and therefore you have to say that there's risk in this. The way I was looking at this is that. If we aren't good enough to expand the electorate in these districts to actually uh, have a Democrat and, and, and have enough support so that one of the Democratic candidates is going to be in this runoff, survive this top two uh, jungle primary system, if we're not good enough to do that, uh, then it doesn't matter whether we, you know, whether the governor, whether they engineer mm-hmm. a, a Democratic second place finisher or whatever in any of these districts or not. In other words, where, I, where I'm going is the DCCC apparently spent what about eight billion dollars, I think, uh, in these districts. If they had spent that organizing on the ground, as Tom Perez of the DNC had said that that's what they would be doing, uh, if they spent that money uh, trying to empower uh, communities that have been disenfranchised. Uh, that are sick and tired of being promised something for two weeks during an election season and not seeing anybody for four years, if they've been showing up in some of these communities, if they've been reaching out to younger voters uh, who are understandably uh, wondering whether there's a real difference between the Democratic and the Republican parties, then we wouldn't even be having this discussion. Instead, what they did is they decided who it is that they could win or that could win this primary. Who was the viable candidate uh, from wherever office they are in in Washington, and then put a bunch of money into those campaigns? And look, some of these candidates are great folks. It's not on them. Uh, What it is on is a a party uh, that prepares itself to be a party that, that listens to the voters uh, and and uh, and doesn't actually do that. Uh, it's not up to them to decide who can win these things. It's up to the voters, and it's up to them to help get the candidates out. Uh, I mean, get the voters out and organized, so that the voters are are engaged uh, in these elections. Do you have any uh, thoughts on this top two primary uh, system? I have uh, been long, I want to say, concerned about it, but I should really say opposed to it. It seems inherently anti-small-D Democratic to me. It feels like one of those things that Democrats did because they felt it was going to help them. But it doesn't feel like it really helps the voters. It kind of reminds me of that that ill-considered frankly, election, uh, electoral college initiative that's been moving through a number of states, even ranked choice voting initiatives that many progressives want but have failed in a number of places where it's been tried. It seems like one of these things that was that Democrats thought it was going to be good for the party, but maybe not necessarily for the voters. Uh, and, and ultimately, though it doesn't appear to have, it could have backfired on Democrats. Your, your thoughts on that top two system as a whole is time to do away with it out here? Well, I, you know, actually, uh, yes, I, I think it is, uh, in, my, in my personal opinion. Uh, you know, we actually happen to be like the idea of trying out uh, these different initiatives. Uh, you know, I know that the issue on ranked choice is up and down all over the place, but 
uh, we need to get some clarity on this thing. We need, you know, and, and you can't find out about these things unless you actually try them out. Mm. Uh, and I actually also personally happen to be for non-national popular vote for the very same reason. Mm-hmm. I you know it's time for us to try uh, a couple of different systems uh, because the electoral college thing to me doesn't work. But the ring, the uh, the top two primary, Brad, to your point, uh, you know, I actually hate to use this state as an example, uh, New York, mm-hmm. uh, but the fact is, uh, we have a primary situation coming up on June 26th where you have a Democrat, Democratic primary, Republican primary, but you also have another, several other parties, uh, most notably the Working Families Party, that also have their line on there. So uh, rather than uh, all of a sudden freeze out uh, uh, parties or, or do a system that is only beneficial to a two-party system, uh, you actually have something in New York State. Uh, where uh, we don't have to be bound by the, you know, the kind of backroom work that gets done uh, when you do have a two-party system that excludes candidates uh, and gets into a situation that's similar like the jungle primary where uh, all of a sudden uh, there's only two folks left standing and they might only be in the same party, uh, which I think is a little bit ridiculous. You know, in New York, for example, uh, Cynthia Nixon can mm-hmm. run on two different uh, 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 party lines, mm-hmm. as, as can Republican and conservative candidates. So there are other parties that uh, that reflect those viewpoints as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think something that inures to the benefit of just two parties, uh, as this seems to do, because yeah. uh, those are the parties that are um, obviously the most have the most resources. I don't think that's good for the voters, particularly now when both parties, frankly, are not doing a good job representing the values of the American people. Yep, I think I agree with you on that point, at least. Uh, in the uh, governor's race out here in California, we've got, uh, looks like we do have two Democrats who will be on the uh, on the ballot this fall, no Republicans. You've got uh, California Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, who appears to have easily taken the top spot. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry, actually, it was, they, they won't have, there will, in fact, be a Republican. I'm sorry, I misspoke there. Yeah. Uh, Republican John Cox, uh, appears to have uh, come in second here uh, over w- w- someone that uh, folks thought would get the second spot. That would be former L.A. Mayor Antonio Villaragosa, uh, who folks thought would come in second. Dave Weigel reports at The Washington Post that the national take on this Newsom-Cox Democratic-Republican contest this fall is that it will boost Republican turnout in the state. The California Democrats' take seems to be that this frees up tens of millions of dollars and uh, get-out-the-vote work for other races, which would have otherwise been spent fighting against uh, a conservative push for the Democrat via Ragosa. So uh, your take on that race and, and DFA's take on Gavin Newsom in general for, uh, for governor. Well, we did not get involved in the governor's race. Uh, uh, the, the membership was clearly focused uh, on some of these congressional districts. And also, uh, I should add that uh, our, our members were also very focused uh, on the uh, U.S. Senate race in California. We want to give a shout-out to Kevin DeLeon, a state senator, mm-hmm. uh, Senate Majority Leader DeLeon, for uh, being in this and forcing the debate through November, which he will do, uh, and energetically so, because that's what he is. And we're absolutely thrilled. Uh, with his uh, his uh, move into the top two, so uh, you know the governor's race we stayed out of. I don't like, frankly, uh, when we get into these situations where a uh, campaign in one party is sort of encouraging or trying to uh, uh, change the results in the other party. And we've seen this happen before in California when Gray Davis uh, went after Richard Reardon 
who was then the mayor of Los Angeles, so that a very conservative William Simon could win the nomination uh, and, and be the better contrast for Gray Davis's re-election campaign, uh, which ultimately uh, ended up him being recalled. And I just don't, I, I don't think it was ter- terrific. I understand that there's a couple of different schools of thought about how this governor's race is going to go, but frankly, uh, I think if you're a Republican running for a governor in the state of California right now, and your president is a guy named Donald Trump, uh, I don't think there. I think it does free up a lot of resources uh, for get out the vote uh, in other state in other parts of the state, uh, and I certainly think uh, it does uh, help Democrats understand what the what the uh, the uh, stakes in this election really are. Uh, this is a state, uh, you know, and I, and I have to say this to your listeners who are in California. Mm-hmm. We really appreciate what's going on there. Please don't secede yet. Give us a couple of years here. Uh, we're going to try to fix this thing. Uh, but California has been the beacon uh, on the resistance, uh, particularly led by folks like Senate Majority Leader De Leon. And uh, so uh, it, it, it's very important that it stay that way. I think the folks in California understand this. And that contrast now that has existed in the governor's race, uh, will only heighten Democratic turnout in this thing. It may it may raise Republican turnout, but uh, they got a top person in that party that's just a disaster. Uh, and as a new, former New Yorker, I could tell you that he is. I've been following this guy Trump for since 1978, and uh, and now that he's now in the election in California, I don't think that's good for the Republican Party in any part of the state. And uh, yeah, just to clarify my uh, misstatement there, uh, where you do have two Democrats running in November, uh, that's in the U.S. Senate race, where, as you noted, Jim Dean, uh, California Senate President, uh, Kevin DeLeon, who's considered to be uh, much more progressive, uh, will run against Democrat Senator uh, Dianne Feinstein. She'll be fighting for her, I think, sixth term at this point. Uh, And I know the DFA has been supportive of uh, DeLeon, so we'll see how it works when you have two Democrats against each other. Although I would say if I was a Republican, yeah, I would not be happy that there was not a Republican in that race. Jim, uh, in our uh, closing uh, few minutes here, uh, as we head towards this crucial midterm election, it seems to me that it is still very unclear, in fact, what it is that Democrats as a party are for. We know what they're against. That would be Donald Trump. But, you know, here we are almost midway through the primary cycle. And frankly, I don't have I don't hear any clear message from Democrats as far as what they stand for as a party, why voters should vote for them. Do you share that concern? Uh, Am I missing something? Or on the other hand is are we, you know, halfway through the primary process? And hey, that's what the primary process is supposed to be about uh, hashing out. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, uh, this is about the third conversation I've had about this today. And, yes, you are not hearing much about what the Democrats stand for uh, from the leadership, uh, particularly in centers of power. And yet, yesterday, particularly, again, in this great state of California, we got some leadership here. Uh, The candidates, actually, that we were supporting, most of the, all of them, well, all the candidates that we were supporting uh, that are in the top two are all candidates that support Medicare for all. Uh, as are a number of the other candidates uh, that are running around the country. Uh, so that is at least one thing that the Democrats can stand for. In fact, I've even heard a couple of U.S. senators, incumbent Democrats, uh, also talk the same uh, thing. So uh, it's time for this kind of thing to start getting winnowed out of the primary process. Uh, and the, uh, the counter to that is a real problem. I mean, I've been in, uh, in a bunch of canvassing offices 
uh, particularly last year in Virginia, where canvassers were being told not to talk to voters about immigration and gun control, <laughs> as if the voters weren't going to ask the question. Uh, it's time for us to start standing up. And that's the thing about so great about these candidates that are running. They're pushing this out. You may not agree with their positions, but they're pushing out the stuff. I think, you know, we, we are having a lot of progressive positions that do have traction. $15 an hour is another one. Uh, uh, again, I mentioned Medicare for all. A lot of these things uh, are going to come out of the primary process, uh, and we just have to make sure that the leadership doesn't try to uh, to buckle that down the way they did uh, the Iraq war issue uh, in 2006, mm. uh, which Ned Lamont thankfully blew up uh, after they kept telling the candidates that they didn't, they shouldn't talk about the war in Iraq. So uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we're in a little bit of that situation now, but I think we're going to get that rid of that in the primary yeah, process. I, you know, I mean, I, I, I obviously I think there are a lot of uh, issues that are important that Democrats and Democratic candidates are currently running on progressive candidates in particular. I just worry that the the National Party is scared to death and, you know, will stay away from any sort of national message uh, for the for the party as a whole, as they they tend to do. They tend to run scared and that may work in a, a blue wave election to some uh, to a certain extent. But it doesn't make it clear what it is that voters get when they, you know, yeah. vote Democratic. Um, You're absolutely right, Brad. But I think the candidates are going to change that. I'm, I'm confident that their aggressive style is going to force the leadership to actually say what they're for and not say you've got to vote for us because the other guy's really bad, which is not a winning message. Before I let you go, Jim Dean, uh, we've got more primaries uh, coming up next Tuesday in Maine, Nevada, North Dakota, South Carolina, and Virginia. Is there anyone that voters should know about that the folks that DFA is supporting in, uh, in, in any of those states before we get there? Well, actually, our next group of primaries is going to be in Washington, D.C., uh, which is the week after. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are two things about this. First, if you're living in Washington, D.C., uh, this is a chance to get behind a bunch of candidates uh, who rightfully support statehood uh, uh, for the district, uh, the 600-plus thousand taxpayers. There's an idea. Voters. Why aren't yeah. Democrats running on that? I mean, I don't, I don't get it. You know, these big ideas, statehood for Washington, D.C., statehood for Puerto Rico. I mean, there are yeah. so many big items that it seems they ought to be fighting for. We had David Ferris, uh, author on uh, the show a few weeks ago. He's got a new book on oh, this, wait. saying it's time to for Democrats to bring out these big ideas. Where the hell are they? Jim? Well, that's the thing. And in these other states that you just mentioned, Brad, Maine, and South Dakota, and every place, there are those big idea candidates out there that are running. And we know that there are a bunch of them in the North Carolina legislature that are great candidates. Uh, there are a lot of folks, again, that reflect the diversity of this country, and I hope folks are going to vote for them. Uh, and I, felt, I think we're going to very much be able to send a national message on June 26th in the New York primary about people-powered politics uh, versus machine power politics in this gubernatorial primary. So we're very, very optimistic about that. And that, we hope, will also help change uh, not only the dynamic of the 2018 elections, uh, but certainly the dynamic of the uh, 2020 uh, presidential uh, elections. Jim Dean, you're awesome. Longtime chair of the progressive grassroots group Democracy for America. You can find them at democracyforamerica.com. You can follow them on the Twitters at DFA Action. Jim, always great talking with you. It's been too long. I hope you don't mind if we bother you more as this uh, Democratic and, Re and Republican primary season moves forward towards November. 
Hey, Brad, I appreciate all you do and really appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to it, man. Thank you, brother. Okay, quick break, and we'll uh, have some time for uh, a a few more results around the country uh, and some good news for more good news for progressives and Democrats. Right here on the broadcast, I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, here in uh, Hotel California, <laughs> you can uh, what are they? You can check out. You can out. check out any time you like, but you, you can, can never, never leave. leave. Well, we're going to leave anyway. We are heading to New Mexico for. Uh, we got more results on this eight day, eight state primary than we can possibly get to. Uh, and there's a ninth, not a primary, but an election in Missouri. Uh, so some of these may have to wait for uh, tomorrow's thrilling broadcast. But let me hit a couple of uh, pieces of good news for Democrats and for progressives here. Let's start in New Mexico. This is uh, very good news. Former state Democratic Party leader Deborah Holland won the Democratic primary in New Mexico's first congressional district Tuesday night in her bid to become the first ever Native American woman to serve in Congress. Wow. It's only took a couple hundred years now for a Native American woman, an indigenous woman, to serve in any capacity in Congress. Yeah, actually, as she said, uh, it took 230 years. There (laughs) There has never been a Native American woman in Congress. There uh, has been, I think, two Native American men uh, in uh, Congress, and I think they're currently in Congress, but she would be the uh, first woman she is a member of the Pueblo of Laguna tribe, and uh, she defeated a crowded field of candidates to secure the Democratic nomination. She will now face a Republican uh, candidate and a Libertarian candidate, but it's uh, the district is believed to be a very Democratic one. And so unless she really screws it up or somebody else does, uh, it looks like she will, in fact, uh, be in the U.S. House next year. She said our win is a victory for working people, a victory for women, and a victory for everyone who has been sidelined by the billionaire class. Our campaign, she said in a statement, is about putting people before corporate profits, standing up to bullies like the fossil fuel industry. Yep. And ensuring every New Mexican and American has the chance to thrive regardless of our skin color, neighborhood, religion, gender, who we love, or the size of our bank account. She added, Donald Trump and the billionaire class should consider this victory a warning shot. The blue wave is coming. We will see. Also, more good news uh, in, uh, in New Mexico. Progressive Susan Herrera appears to have defeated longtime state rep Debbie Rodella, 
who helped kill voting rights bills like automatic voter registration in the state of New Mexico. This makes it much more likely that the state will now pass automatic and same-day voter registration. The Santa Fe New Mexican describes this as um, the end of a political era in northern New Mexico. In a decisive victory, progressive newcomer Susan Herrera defeated 25-year incumbent Debbie Rodello, Rodella in the District, uh, District 41 Democratic primary for New Mexico's State House of Representatives. Herrera's double-digit win signals a shift to the left, the paper says, in a historically blue but socially conservative swath of northern New Mexico. Herrera, 70-year-old 70, 70 former CEO of the Los Alamos National Laboratory Foundation. Oh. Uh, yeah, whose uh, grassroots uh, campaign mounted a fiery last-minute rebuke to negative advertisement by her opponents, is now all but assured victory in November because... No Republican is opposing her. So she would really have to screw it up to not win this one. Um, if she had been reelected, Rodella uh, would have been the longest serving lawmaker in the in the state house. Throughout the campaign, Rodella had shunned media exposure. She turned down requests for interviews and opportunities to debate Herrera. She just ran. She just hid. Rodella, however, Proved uh, the more successful fundraiser in the race. She raked in some $90,000 compared to Herrera's $53,000, and yet Herrera still beat her. About one-third of Rodella's money came from out-of-state lobbyists, corporate interests, oil and gas behemoths. There you go. Pharmaceutical companies, private prison outfits, and Walmart. They were all behind this woman. Uh, throughout the campaign, Herrera painted... Uh, her as out of touch, uh, a pseudo liberal whose campaign contribution roster would lead to her downfall. And apparently it did. Rodella had voted with with Republicans on social issues, including gun control. In fact, the National Rifle Association apparently threw her a fundraiser in May. That does not bode well for uh, for any other Democrats left out there who are. Uh, getting in bed with the NRA at this point. Um, so there's some good news out of New Mexico and uh, some good news in Missouri. Hadn't even been uh, watching this very closely because this was not a primary, but rather a special election. Democrats flipped a Missouri Senate seat long held by Republicans in a Tuesday special election just days after Disgraced, now resigned Governor Eric Greitens, a Republican, had uh, stepped, had, had, had resigned under a cloud of scandal. The results suggest that Greitens' effect, combined with anti-Trump energy among Democrats, could pose very serious problems for Republicans this fall, even in my now very Republican home, uh, old home state of Missouri. Uh, there will be a crucial Senate race on the ballot, Claire McCaskill is locked in a close race to keep her seat against Republican Attorney General Josh Hawley in Missouri. But uh, in the special election on Tuesday, Democrat Lauren Arthur beat Republican Kevin Corlew with uh, nearly 60 percent of the vote. This in an area that Donald Trump won. He won this district uh, by five points in 2016. It has been under Republican control for more than a decade 
Neither of the two candidates uh, campaigned much on the blackmail and campaign finance scandal that finally prompted Greitens to step down last week after months of turmoil. Some blamed Greitens for another GOP special election loss back in February, linking a steep drop in the governor's favorability after his scandals went public to a shocking defeat for a state assembly seat in another dark red district. So this is two Missouri uh, uh, state legislative seats in very Republican districts that have now gone to Democrats over the past few months. And just a reminder about why these state legislative seats are so very important, no matter where you live. Because, you know, in those states, those state legislatures are the ones who write the voting laws, the ones that restrict voters or help voters vote, and they're also the ones that set the districts, that draw the district maps for our congressional districts and our Coming state Coming up in uh, 2020. Exactly. Yep. A GOP consultant in the state told the Kansas City Star about this uh, special election that Tuesday's results boded poorly for his party in the upcoming midterm. He said, quote, every suburban Republican should be petrified tonight. This devastating loss signals they could lose this fall. Claire McCaskill, of course, agrees. Uh, She issued a statement suggesting as much. She said Lauren Arthur's 19-point margin. By the way, that was a 24-point swing. She won by 19 points. Uh, but if you add to that the uh, the 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 margin from uh, 2016 that Trump won, this is a 24-point swing. In the state of Missouri. Uh, Anyway, Lauren's 19 point margin shows that Missourians are ready for candidates that will fight for working families and education rather than than being part of the sideshow that Jefferson City, that's the capital, Jeff City, uh, under total Republican leadership has become. It has become a sideshow. And so the work to undo all of the sideshows in our what, year and a half, two year, going on two years, uh, national emergency in this country uh, may soon be coming to an end, but we will see a lot of work to go. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to uh, DFA's Jim Dean, Democracy for America's Jim Dean, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you can find me at the Brad Blog. Drop me email if you like. I'd love to hear from you. I'm Bradcast at bradblog.com. And my thanks as all as always to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves and continue to turn down all that funding from Walmart and the fossil fuel <laughs> industry. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.